It's good to be back. We have completed a series on the kingdom of God. We looked at the time frame of the kingdom. That the kingdom is already here, but the kingdom is not yet. We looked at the king of the kingdom, King Jesus, and that he is reigning on his throne right now. But yet a day comes when every knee will bow. We've looked at the citizens of the kingdom. The citizens are those who are born again, who are humble in the sight of God, who are super righteous because theirs is the righteousness of Christ, who are poor in spirit, who are violent in the sense that they are pressing into the kingdom and they will not be denied the kingdom. And citizens who are both Jews and Gentiles. We've looked at the law of the kingdom. The law is the word of King Jesus. And it is to be expressly and explicitly obeyed. And we looked at the message of the kingdom. The good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that those who rest in Christ for their salvation and who cease their striving to be made right with God by their own works and by their own means are those who are brought into the kingdom and blessed by God and who will dwell with God for eternity. With the completion of this series, we now go back to the Gospel of Luke. And our text for today is from Luke 13, 18 through 21, in which we see two parables. The parable commonly called of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Luke 13, 18 through 21. Then he, Jesus, said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till all was leaven. As we consider this today, we're going to look at parables in general, first of all, and we will look at the definition of and the purpose of parables, and then we will look at the purpose of our two parables in the text. Then we will consider the point of parables in general, and then the point of the parables in our text. Then we will consider two what I believe to be wrong interpretations of this parable and conclude with what I believe is a proper understanding of it. So what is a parable? And what was the purpose of the parables as Jesus gave them? Well, parables, by definition, are teachings where a common, everyday, earthly reality is used to illustrate a spiritual reality. Jesus' society was an agrarian society. A lot of people had dirt under their fingernails. They grew food. They 
tilled the ground. They knew what a farmer looked like who was planting seeds. And so Jesus used everyday earthly realities to illustrate spiritual points, such as in the parable of the soils. Remember, the sower went forth to sow seed, and some landed in the wayside, and on thorny ground, and on rocky ground, and on good ground. And then, how did he explain that? The soils were different types of hearts of people. And then there were different responses to the seed of the kingdom, the gospel. So, Jesus was using everyday realities to illustrate spiritual truths. But now, what is the purpose of the parables? When preachers stand up and they use an illustration, they are doing it generally to make their point clear for everyone to hear. But is that what Jesus was doing? No, it's not. If we consider Mark chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, we see Jesus specifically mention the purpose of the parables. And it was not to make his points clear so that everyone who heard with these physical ears could comprehend the truth. Rather, Jesus says in Mark 4, 9-12, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, he's not saying, He who have, has those really funny pieces of flesh that we have slapped to the side of our heads, let him hear. He's saying, He who has spiritual ears, the ability to understand and grasp spiritually, let him comprehend these truths. Because then he goes on to say, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. You see, Jesus is clearly delineating between those who are in and those who are out. Those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom. To those who are in the kingdom, it is given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom. To those that are out, Jesus speaks in parables. For what purpose? So that, seeing, they may see and not perceive, and hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Wow. So Jesus wasn't just being a good preacher and trying to make a point that everybody could understand. He was speaking in paradoxical, enigmatic language, puzzling language to some degree, because if somebody didn't have the spiritual ability to understand what was underneath those physical realities, then they weren't fully going to grasp the truth that Jesus was communicating to those that were truly in the kingdom. Now, Jesus was quoting from Isaiah chapter 6 when he talks about lest they hear in turn. Isaiah chapter 6, and we can look at the beginning with uh, verse 6 and move down from there. This is when Isaiah is commissioned to go and preach. And we see in Isaiah 6, verse 6, 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah speaking, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Wow! How would you like that job? Preacher? Teacher? Go and tell them these things so that they will not comprehend the truth and so that they will be confirmed in their rebellion and wickedness and will not repent. I didn't say it, God did. Then Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. God has said, at this point, I have called them to repentance, his people Israel, and called them to repentance, and called them to repentance, and forgiven them, and forgiven them, and forgiven them, and now it's too late. And they are to be hardened in their hardness of heart so that they will not repent and so that they will be laid desolate. But he does go on and say, there will be a tent. See, God always has preserved a remnant. Always a remnant. I believe then that the clear meaning of these texts is that Jesus speaks in parables to reveal the mystery of the kingdom, the deep, once hidden truths of the kingdom to the elect, and to hide the full salvific meaning of these things from the non-elect. That is the purpose of the parables in general. But what about the purpose of our two parables? I believe when looking at these in the context of Scripture, that the purpose of the parable of the mustard seed and of the the yeast or the leaven in the meal is to reveal the mystery of the slow and steady growth of the kingdom in order to instruct and encourage the disciples who thought that the kingdom would come with visible explosive, immediate dominance. Jesus wants them to realize that the kingdom comes not as they picture it, but it comes from an insignificant start and it will grow and spread over the entire earth and one day dominate the world. So if the purpose of the parables in general was to reveal truth to some and hide it from others. What about the point of the parables in general? Please consider this with me. I think in general there is one main point that needs to be found in the parables. Yes, it is true that oftentimes in the parables each object and each action directly represents something. Right? Think with me here for a moment. The parable of the wheat and the tares. 
Jesus explains it for us so we know what it means. The wheat and the tares. A farmer has a field of wheat. His enemy goes in and he sows tares, which is another word for weeds. Okay, we'll call it weeds. An enemy goes in and sows weeds in his wheat field. You ever had anybody sow weeds in your wheat field? <laughs> anyway, the question is asked, well, what should be done? And it is decided that the harvest time will come and to let the weeds grow up with the wheat until the harvest comes and then to harvest it all to separate the weeds from the wheat to burn the weeds and to put the wheat into the barn. Well, Jesus then explains what each of those objects or actions represents. The field is the world. The enemy is Satan. The wheat are the sons of the kingdom or those that are saved. The weeds are those that are lost. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers who go and harvest are the angels. And then there is the judgment and the lost are burnt in the fire of hell and the saved are gathered into heaven. So in that instance, each one of those things, objects or actions, represent something specifically. But in the parables, we don't always have Jesus explain to us exactly what each thing means. So the importance there is to realize that oftentimes the parables are trying to make a main point. And it's easier for us to find the main point. And the farther we move from the main point, the more speculative it becomes. Because if Jesus hasn't explained it to us, or it's not explained in the scriptures what each thing means, you know, in many ways, your opinion is just as good as my opinion. Right? So we look for the main points. We look for the main point. The big picture. So what is the point of our parables? Then the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. I think we can summarize the big picture main point is this. The parable of the mustard seed points to the progression of the kingdom and the parable of the yeast points to the permeation of the kingdom. Mustard seed, the progression of the kingdom. The yeast, the permeation that the yeast is put in three measures of meal and it permeates all of that meal. Y'all have baked bread. What happens when you put a little yeast in, in the dough? It spreads to the whole loaf, right? Permeates the whole thing. So, what is this pointing to? Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed. It's like this yeast. So, it's pointing to in the mustard seed the progression of the kingdom from an insignificant start, the tiniest of little seeds, to a glorious finish. So just like the mustard seed is small and insignificant, yet grows into a towering plant, so also the kingdom has an insignificant beginning, yet grows into a significant force in the world at large. finally comes to dominate the earth. Sam Waldron in 
a book of his on eschatology called The End Times Made Simple. And just as a side note, if you read the introduction, he knows that that's an audacious title, <laughs> The End Times Made Simple. It's only probably the most complicated study in all of Scripture. But he brings out a couple points about this parable of the mustard seed. One, it represents the kingdom, obviously, because Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed. And the kingdom has an insignificant beginning, just like this seed, which was the tiniest of seeds that they planted in their garden. But it has amazing germinal power. Amazing power to germinate and to grow and to spread. And then finally comes to dominate the entire garden. This ended up being the tallest plant in all of their gardens. Now this isn't a mustard like we think of mustard. With uh, little yellow flowers and whatnot. That Not the same plant. Okay, We're talking about 2,000 years ago in Palestine. We're not talking about 21st century in Arkansas. So, their plant would grow from a tiny seed to up to 8 to 12 feet tall. And then the branches would, or of this plant would end up somewhat hardening, almost like some certain types of weeds will harden as they mature to the point where birds could actually come and land on this thing and it could support them. An insignificant beginning, amazing germinal power, and then final dominance. So like the tiny mustard seed, the kingdom begins insignificantly with a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi and a ragtag band of followers. Yet also like the mustard seed, the kingdom has amazing power to grow. And like the mustard plant ends up dominating the garden, so the kingdom will spread to the entire earth. The parable of the leaven points to the permeation of the kingdom, as I said. Like a small portion of yeast spreads through the entire batch of meal, the kingdom will expand exponentially and spread to fill the earth through the apparently insignificant means of the preaching of the message of the kingdom, the gospel. The whole earth will hear this message and God will bring in his elects. Let's draw from one of our dead friends, as a friend of mine calls them, Matthew Henry, and his commentary on the scriptures. Man, God gave much wisdom. He says this, speaking on our text, Christ undertakes here to show what the kingdom of God is like. Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It will be quite another thing from what you expect, and will operate and gain its point in quite another manner. You expect it will appear great and will arrive at its perfection all of a sudden. But you are mistaken. It is like a grain of mustard seed. A little thing takes up but little room, makes but a little figure, and promises but little. Yet when sown in soil proper to receive it, it waxes a great tree. He goes on. Many perhaps were prejudiced against the gospel and loath to come into the obedience of it because its beginning was so small. They were ready to say of Christ, Can this man save us? And of his gospel, is this likely ever to come to anything? Now Christ would remove this prejudice by assuring them that though its beginning was small, its latter end should greatly increase, so that many should come, should come upon the wings, should fly like a cloud to lodge in the branches of it. 
You expect it will make its way by external means, by subduing nations and vanquishing armies. But it will work like leaven, silently and insensibly, and without any force or violence. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So the doctrine of Christ will strangely diffuse its relish into the world of mankind. In this it triumphs, that the savor of the knowledge of it is unaccountably made manifest in every place, beyond what one could have expected. But you must give it time. Wait for the issue of the preaching of the gospel to the world, and you will find it does wonders, and alters the property of the souls of men. By degrees the whole will be leavened, even as many as are, like the meal to the leaven, prepared to receive the savor of it. Consider again the insignificant beginning of the kingdom. Consider the forerunner of the kingdom, John the Baptist. Here was a hairy guy wearing a hairy garment eating locust and wild honey camped out in the desert and he pops into Palestine and says repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand you'd be kind of like who's this guy think about Jesus the king his family insignificant his birth insignificant his hometown Insignificant. His profession. Insignificant. Think about the messengers, the apostles that Jesus chose to proclaim this message. Mostly fishermen. None of them with power or prestige. There were men like Peter. John MacArthur writes this of Peter in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. No one speaks as often as Peter and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord as Peter and no disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged His Lordship more explicitly Yet no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ as forcefully or as publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Christ the way Peter was, yet Peter was the only one Christ ever addressed as Satan. The Lord had harsher things to say to Peter than he ever said to any of the others. All of that, says MacArthur, contributed to making him the leader Christ wanted him to be. God took a common man with an ambivalent, vacillating, impulsive, unsubmissive personality and shaped him into a rock-like leader. The greatest preacher among the apostles and in every sense the dominant figure in the first 12 chapters of Acts where the church was born. Consider with me also the sons of thunder, James and John. That sounds like a name that a dad would give his boys, right? The sons of thunder. You know what? It was probably a negative title, not a positive title. They were called the Sons of Thunder because they were violent and explosive in their personality and they wanted power and dominance. 
These are James and John. These are the guys that when Jesus went through Samaria and the Samaritans rejected Jesus, they said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on them like Elijah? (laughs) Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. I came to save, not to destroy. The sons of thunder, manly men, they put their mama up to going and talking to Jesus because they wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> yeah, tough guys. <laughs> Get your mama to run that errand for you. I want to be on the right hand of Jesus. <laughs> I want a place of power and authority. Mom, go get it for me. <laughs> Think about a, a pair of guys that Jesus chose. We've got Simon the Zealot and we've got Matthew the tax collector. The tax collectors were the lackeys of Rome and zealots wanted to disembowel Romans. <laughs> but yet Jesus called them both together. Here's the point. What insignificant people and unlikely people to build the kingdom of God. But you see, Jesus wasn't setting out to find a few good men. Jesus was setting out to make a few men good. So that the power would clearly be of God and not of men. So from an insignificant start. Consider the amazing germinal power of the kingdom. The amazing power to grow and to spread. Consider this for a moment. From the point that these parables were mentioned, 30 internet, Twitter, Facebook, cell phone, U.S. Postal Service free years after this, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, As you have heard in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in also in all the world, and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. You hear that? This message had already gone to all of the known world from this insignificant beginning. It had amazing germinal power. We sang, His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Then also, consider the final dominance of the kingdom. Like the mustard seed grew to be 8 to 12 feet tall and dominated the other plants in the garden, so the kingdom will one day dominate the earth. At the return of Christ, I believe at the beginning of the age to come the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God consider this from Revelation 11 15 through 18 then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy your earth. What a glorious proclamation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. There are a couple, in my opinion, incorrect interpretations of these parables. Now, these are within the Christian camp. So, again, I very humbly present to you my view and why I think these views are incorrect. The first view, and this is a very common text in support of this view, is a view called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism says that Christ will come back after the millennial kingdom era. Post-millennialism posits that the influence of the kingdom will increase to the point that the entire world becomes Christianized before the return of Christ. Postmillennialism says that governments will be promoting God's righteous laws when Christ comes, that countries will be filled with righteousness, that churches will be full of people, not all people will be saved, but even the unsaved will live in general according to the law of God. Now, first of all, this view of postmillennialism, I believe, rightly emphasizes the power of the gospel. I believe it does. Postmillennialism then sees the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven as teaching this spread and dominance of the kingdom. But, I believe that it's an error regarding the timing of the final dominance of the kingdom. Okay? So that's where I differ. I do believe there will be final dominance of the kingdom. But when will there be the final dominance of the kingdom? Postmillennialism says that that will take place before Christ returns. I believe the scriptures teach that that will take place after Christ returns. And let's consider a couple points from this. In the big picture of eschatology, the big picture of time, if you can envision with me a timeline, there is a dividing line on that timeline, and the broadest categories in Scripture proclaim that there is this age and the age to come. I think you could put all of human history into those two categories. This age and the age to come. Two ages. Some evidence for this can be found in Matthew chapter 12, 31 through 32, which we will cross-reference with Mark chapter 3, 28 and 29. This was... Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. But don't focus in on that. That's not the point I'm trying to make from this. We're going to focus in on another point that's made. Matthew 12, 31 and 32. There are two ages. This age and the age to come. 
Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There are two ages. Now, we have a parallel passage, meaning it is addressing the same event and the same teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 3, 28 and 29. Here's what this parallel passage says. Follow with me here very closely to see what I'm trying to say. In the parallel passage, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now, let's put these two together for a moment. Jesus said, It will not be forgiven that person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit in this age or in the age to come. And in a parallel passage, it says that he will never be forgiven. So I think those two ages then exhaust all of time. Because Jesus says, never forgiven. So what am I saying? We're not looking for multiple ages yet to come. We're looking for one age to come. We're in this age and we look for the age to come. There will not be, in my opinion, a golden age on earth that is before the age to come. Because what is the dividing line that separates on the timeline this age from the age to come? The scriptures make that clear that it is the return of Christ. The return of Christ. At the return of Christ, we will enter into the age to come, not before. And since there are just these two ages, then we don't look for a golden age to come on the earth, but until after Christ comes, then we see the new heavens and new earth, and I believe that age will be ushered in. So, thus I disagree with a post-millennial interpretation. Furthermore, this age is always spoken of in the scripture as being an evil age, dominated by evil. We've just got two ages, this age and the age to come. The age to come is ushered in when Christ returns, according to the scriptures, like the parable of the wheat and the tares. It speaks about the end of the age being when the harvesters, the angels go and they gather all people up and the judgment takes place. That's the end of the age. And then there's the age to come. This age is always spoken of as an evil age. Postmillennialism says that this age will one day be a golden age on the earth in which Christianity will dominate the earth. But consider these scriptures, and I'm going to read a short segment from Sam Waldron's book, The End Times Made Simple. He says, This age is and always will be an evil age. So the proposition here is, in other words, that the basic character of this age will always be morally evil. A number of the key passages where the two-age terminology is used require this conclusion. 
Luke 16.8 speaks of evil men as the sons of this age and contrasts them with the sons of light. Mark 10.30 teaches that those who have left off for Christ must always expect persecutions in this age. As long as this age lasts, then, persecution will be the lot of the true Christians. But you see, according to postmillennialism, that won't be the case. Romans 12.2 is Paul's exhortation to Christians not to be conformed to this age. Such language plainly assumes that this age will always be an evil age. It is asserted in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the god of this age. It is therefore necessarily evil. Galatians 1.4 is Paul's description of this age as a, quote, present evil age, from which the elect are to be delivered by the death of Christ. Ephesians 2.2 describes the former wicked lives of Ephesian believers as walking according to the age of this world. He goes on, such passages as these presuppose and assume that this present age is and always will be evil. If this were not the case, there might come a day when the persecution of Christians would cease. But it would not be wrong to be conformed to this age. Then Satan would not be its God. Then Paul's description of it as evil would cease to be true. And then one could walk according to the age of this world and be righteous. All this would defy, however, the plain implications of these passages. He concludes, such passages confront postmillennialism with a serious difficulty. Postmillennialism teaches that good triumphs over evil in this age. Righteousness and peace in this age overcome unrighteousness and hatred, according to postmillennialism. Postmillennialists may qualify their teaching by saying that they do not believe that this age will become perfect or that every single man will be converted. Still, nonetheless, their contention remains that in substance, good triumphs over evil in this age. When the Bible, however, assumes that this age, which ends, as we have seen, only with the second coming of Christ, is and always will be evil, it teaches something that pointedly contradicts postmillennialism. And uh, I do believe that is true. Postmillennialism, in my humble opinion, is based more on arguments from reason rather than clear exposition of scriptural passages. Um, again, within the Christian camp, but I don't think that that is uh, a correct view of these parables. Now, I do believe that both these parables point to the dominance of the kingdom of God that is to come. But it comes in the age to come, not in this age. Okay? However, even in this age, the kingdom will magnificently spread and God will mightily work to save his elect. So, we hopefully and joyfully promote missions and evangelism, right? So that is what I believe one wrong interpretation. Here's the other. Um, this interpretation flowing out of a system in general called dispensationalism. It sees these parables as entirely negative in their tone. Here's a statement from the Believer's Bible Commentary. The parable of the mustard seed. This parable pictures the growth of the kingdom from a beginning as small as a mustard seed 
to a tree or bush big enough for the birds to roost in. The kingdom began with a small persecuted minority. That sounds right so far. Then it became more popular and was embraced by governments as the state religion. This growth was spectacular but unhealthy, much of it representing people who paid lip service to the king but were not truly converted. Oh, so you see there? They're taking Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed and it's like this leaven which grows and which spreads. And they're saying, Jesus is pointing out a negative truth that it's going to grow, but it's going to be an unhealthy growth. goes on to say in Believer's Bible Commentary that a mustard bush therefore pictures professed Christendom which has become a roosting place for all kinds of false teachers. So when it says there that the mustard plant has the birds come and, and roost in it, they're saying Jesus is teaching that it's this unhealthy growth into this giant plant and then false teachers come in and they roost in it and that's a bad thing. They say it is the outward form of the kingdom as it exists today. So when we look around and we, we see Roman Catholicism predominant in certain nations and, and uh, United States being a Christian nation, they say that that's what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing that it was just going to be basically in name only and there would be lots of false teachers. Now, I simply don't, I simply don't agree with this for a couple of reasons. One... Um, the tone of the passage speaking about significant growth and eventual domination and significant permeation and this seems to be a very positive tone to this passage very positive I think Jesus is using this to encourage his disciples who are looking on and saying well this isn't what we expected Jesus you know, Jesus, why aren't you mounting your charger and pulling out a sword and going and lopping the head off of the emperor? You know, what's going on here, Jesus? I think he was giving us to encourage them. No, it starts small. It starts like this, but it's going to grow. It's going to dominate, but don't lose heart. That just seems to scream out as the tone of this passage, not negative. Now, it is true that yeast is most often in the scriptures a negative picture, right? Can you think of some examples where Jesus talks about yeast to represent a negative thing? What about beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees? Now, but here's a, a point of biblical interpretation. Just because a picture like yeast is used often in a negative sense, does that mean it has to be used in a negative sense in every single passage? No, it doesn't. The context determines the sense of it, right? So here's another reason I think this is a positive passage. I think there's an allusion here to Ezekiel chapter 17. What do we see in Ezekiel 17? Turn over there and consider what do you see in Ezekiel 17? If you want to, if you want to, to save time, focus in on verses 22 through 24. You're going to see talk about branches and plants and growth and birds dwelling under the branches. 
The Lord in Ezekiel had given an allegory, a picture that represented some specific truths. And then the Lord gives the interpretation of that allegory. We have an eagle who comes and takes sprigs from a tree and various other things pictured there. What is being promoted here is that, or pictured here is that Nebuchadnezzar is pictured as the first eagle in the passage. He carried off Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who was the topmost twig in that passage. And he carried him off from Jerusalem into Babylon. And Babylon, in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar then took Zedekiah, the king's offspring, and set him up as vassal king in Judah. Then Zedekiah, who was pictured as the low-spreading vine, decided that he didn't want to be under Nebuchadnezzar's authority, so he went and he called to the other eagle, which was representative of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh of Egypt, and said, I want you to come here and I want you to help free us so I'm not under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar any longer. And God says that he is displeased with Zedekiah for doing that. He's displeased with Zedekiah for breaking his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It is, in fact, the same as if he had broke that covenant with God. As a result, then, he would be carried into Babylon and die there, and Pharaoh would not be able to help him. But then we get to verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit, and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort, and the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. And I believe this is a prophecy of the Messiah who would be planted and who would grow and who would reign over his kingdom. And the birds, I believe, are picturing the Gentiles being brought in and being able to rest in the protection of this tree. And I think, there's allu- I think there's an illusion in our parable of this mustard seed growing into this plant and the birds of the air coming and resting there. I think it's a positive picture, not a negative picture. A positive picture of people being brought in to the kingdom and finding security and rest there under the lordship of Messiah King. So, Obviously, then, I don't hold to the post-millennial or to the dispensational interpretation. I guess I would hold to what you might call optimistic amillennialism. Optimistic amillennialism. We live in a dark age. It is dark now. It will always be dark in this age. But the light is shining even now. And the light will continue to shine And even though things will get darker, the scriptures say, before the end, the night is darkest before the dawn. 
the kingdom will continue to advance. For Christ, the light of the world, has come. And we are children of the light. And as God's children, we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse age. So I think we have to be realistic but optimistic. We're not defeatists. We won't hold up and hover around our light like moths hovering around a candle. But we'll go forth like people searching for the lost with powerful searchlight that cut through the darkness and light up those who are lost. And we do not lose hope. Even though we live in a dark age, we know that the day is coming, that the brilliant light of our King will illuminate the entire earth. When our King Jesus comes, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then when He comes in brilliant glory of His power to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, we hope in that event and know that will take place. And so what do we do? We preach the gospel which is foolishness to men. And you gather together on a Sunday when you could be out there doing fun things, right? Like playing golf or whatever. And you listen to the message of the gospel, which is foolishness to men, but is the wisdom of God. So don't lose hope, my friends. Don't ever feel that what we're doing here is insignificant and foolish and worthless. The foolishness of God is wisdom. And the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And so what do we do? We preach the gospel. We gather together to hear the gospel. We go into our communities and we share the gospel and we live the gospel out before people so that the kingdom will advance. What do we do? We take our money and we give it to crazy people who go forth into lands like Papua, Indonesia, where they know they're going to die. They take their kids into this land. They know they're not going to live to 100 years old over there. They know that the chances are huge that they're going to die at a young age. We take our money and we give it to these crazy people. Why? Why? Why when I make contact with a missionary and they come through and preach for us, why why aren't you coming to me and saying, there is no way that you're going to use my money to send that crazy fool over to that crazy land on that fool's errand? Why don't you do that? Do you have hope in the gospel? Do you believe in the kingdom of God? Our missionaries do. Uh, I hope you have prayer cards of our missionaries. 
Listen to these verses that are on the cards of these missionaries. Now, they're not all millennialists like I am. But they're all optimistic about the gospel. The Edelins. They who have no news of him will see. And they who have not heard will understand. Romans 15.21 The Fliegers. Michael and Aaron Flieger. It is too late a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49 verse 6. The Snyders. Paul and Trish Snyder. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Isaiah 12 verse 5. The Johnsons, Trevor and Teresa. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 Why do we send them forth? Because they believe in the power of the gospel of the kingdom. And they believe that God is at work. And His kingdom will come. And that day is come. One day every knee will bow to King Jesus. One day we will be vindicated. Our foolishness in sending out these crazy people and in preaching this gospel will be vindicated unto all. And our God will be magnificently glorified for all the world to see. So my friends, it's all worth it. Every moment, every penny, every breath spent and heartbeat expended is worth it. So don't lose hope. Believe in the power of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for the advance of your kingdom. Thank you for the glorious hope that you will reign from shore to shore. And we ask, dear God, that you give us hope always and hearts to participate in this glorious gospel of the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.